0: So what I'm going to do is I'm just giving you a tidbit here because it's all I can give you. But at the same time, again, I think thus far we understand in seminar number one, history repeats itself. Amen. And therefore, what we want to do is we want to be mindful that we repeat the positive side of history rather than the negative. Amen. Okay, we learned in seminar two that there are some specific instructions and guidelines that God gives as it relates to understanding the utilization of music. We know that the priests were the ones whom God used in a very mighty way to lead out in song. And so it is that as a priesthood, in the context of how we studied it, we should be the leaders when it comes to song and to music and understanding sacred song. And therefore, we looked at several different principles, and we talked about everything from how a song is just like prayer. Therefore, the same principles that govern prayer are the same principles that should govern singing. And then we looked at several different points about the lifestyle of the individual. The same way that those priests were holy people is the same way we should be holy people. We should not look at Christianity as some part-time thing that we just go ahead and do and have some fun in it. The life should be consecrated. The life should be surrendered to Christ so that way we're not singing about a song that we know nothing of its experience. And then in addition to that, we also saw that it's very, very important that we make sure that we understand the direction of the song. When we're putting together lyrics, when we're putting together these things, they should lead us to reflect that image of God. They should lead us to enter into a place where it is motivating me to want to be more like Jesus in all of the different ways that he worked his works and manifested his spirit. So now we're looking at this topic, music, in the most holy place. So we're going to look at some principles as it relates to the most holy place, and then we're going to go ahead and go through the final steps of this presentation. So let's pause once again for a word of prayer as we prepare to begin. Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, that you're helping us to really understand your words better. And Lord, I know that there's so much more that we could learn, and that's why I'm praying more than anything else, that our hearts and our minds would be motivated to study further, to look deeper and to dig deeper, to go into your truth and to understand how music can even affect us, even in these very last days of earth's history and how we need to be ever so careful. Please, Lord, guide our minds, we pray, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's go to the book of Daniel, chapter 8, verse 14. This is the coined Bible verse of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Daniel, chapter 8, and verse 14. And remember, we showed you... Oh, by the way, earlier today when I was doing Sabbath school, I said a quotation that I said was from manuscript release, book 1, page 295. It is not manuscript release, book 1, page 295. It is manuscript release, book 1, page 228. It is 228, not 295. And in manuscript release, book one, page 228, it says very clearly that the whole purpose that God raised up seven-day Adventist schools, sanitariums, food factories, hygienic restaurants, and the list goes on, was to prepare a people to stand true to God in the judgment. Where is it again? That is manuscript release, book one, page 228. So that is the reason why God even established our schools, our sanitariums, of course, you know, our hygienic restaurants, even our food factories. Everything was to help a people stand true to God in the judgment. Now, understanding that, let's go to Daniel 8:14. Now, we know Daniel 8:14 very well. At least we should. And in Daniel 8 and verse 14, the Bible clearly says, "And he said unto me, What? Unto two thousand three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be." Cleansed. Now, the sanctuary needs to be cleansed. Is that right? When did that work start? 1844. 1844. Beautiful. So the sanctuary started, that, that cleansing work of the sanctuary started in 1844. Christ, he moved from the holy place to the most holy place. He's doing the first work in the plan of salvation or the final work? Final work. He's doing the final work in the plan of salvation. That final work is to blot out sin or to cleanse the sanctuary. Is that right? Now, Let's go to Leviticus, the 16th chapter. Let's look at something. Question, why hasn't the sanctuary been cleansed yet? Talk to me. Why hasn't the sanctuary been cleansed yet? All right, well, let's go to Leviticus 16. Now, in Leviticus 16, let's look at verse 16, and we'll take it from verse 16 to verse 19. Leviticus 16, verse 16 to verse 19. The Bible says, and he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel. This was a work that was done on the day of atonement. It says, and because of their transgressions and all their sins, and so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household, and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord, and make an atonement for it. And shall take of the blood of the bullock, and of the blood of the goat, and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times, and cleanse what? It. And hollow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. What is the it that's being cleansed? What is it? It's the sanctuary. It is the sanctuary. It is the structure. The structure is being cleansed. What is being used to do this cleansing? Blood. Blood. All right. Now go to verse 30. In verse 30, same chapter, verse 30, it says this. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse what? You that ye may be clean from how many? All your sins before the Lord. So now here's my question. In the cleansing of the sanctuary, is it one thing that's being cleansed or two? We see that the structure does have to go through a cleansing, but what has to be cleansed first? Huh? The people. Because we're the ones that keep causing it to be dirty. Is that right? So therefore... When the Bible says unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. The only way the sanctuary can be cleansed is when God can establish such a relationship with the people that they can love him so much that they would prefer to die than sin anything into the sanctuary that would make it dirty. And what's the only thing that'll make the sanctuary dirty? Sin. So God must develop a people that will get to a point in their love walk with him that we would prefer to die than sin against him. You see, we're talking about music and all these other things, but brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you right now, no one will give up anything for real unless they love God. Amen. Intellectual stimulation only lasts for a few moments. So if all we do is leave it at intellect and just say, well, intellectually, I can see why this is wrong. I can promise you, I've never seen an individual get victory over any sin based on just simply an intellectual understanding of why it's wrong. And the reason why is because... God wants to get rid of sin outside of the action as well as in the heart. So while we may not do the action, if we still love the sin in our heart, God says, I still have an untrustworthy person to let into the kingdom. God says, I got to cleanse the heart. I got to get you and I to a point that we can literally overcome sin. Yes, but at the same time, it's not just going to be from the externals. We're gonna need Jesus to come into our hearts. We're gonna need Christ and his righteousness. He must live out his life within us. He must become first, last, and best in our lives. That's the only way you will ever stop doing anything that the Bible calls sin. It's the only way that's gonna happen. You and I cannot think that just an intellectual ascent to truth constitutes righteousness. That was the great mistake of the Pharisees according to Desire of Ages, page 309. She says they thought that an intellectual ascent to truth constituted righteousness while they hated Christ in their hearts it's amazing that's why Jesus looking them in the eyes and he says you know it, it is said that thou shalt not kill but Jesus looks them in the eyes and says but if you hate your brother without a cause he was trying to get across to their minds that even though you may not have put the knife in my back yet the very fact that you're plotting you already violated the commandment God wants to cleanse our hearts amen as well as our external behaviors. Now, understanding that this is the great work that God wants to do. Now, let's go to the book of Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, in verse 28, you'll find that God gave a very important principle as it related to the Day of Atonement. You know, there was a, if any of you have been listening to uh, Audioverse, you know that there's a six-part series that was just recently put up there uh, that, I, that uh, the Lord allowed me to do with the Southwest youth conference and we deal with the things that Israel were supposed to be doing while the high priest was in the most holy place. Um, That's a very, very important topic. We need to understand our position, our work. We need to know what are we supposed to be doing while the high priest is in the most holy. And there were four instructions and they're all in Leviticus 23. In Leviticus 23, you'll find that in verse 27, it says, Also on the tenth day of this seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, and you shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. The Bible is very clear that there are four instructions that describe the life of Israel when the high priest entered the most holy place. The four instructions are simply this. Holy convocation, afflict your soul, offer an offering made by fire, and do no work. Do you know that that's literally the fourfold description of the lifestyle of the Seventh-day Adventists? The fourfold description of the lifestyle of the Seventh-day Adventists today is to have holy convocation, to afflict their souls, to offer an offering made by fire, and we're not supposed to be working. Now, of course, you have to anti-type that. Is that right? You're going to have to say, okay, well, how do we apply that today? How do we apply that since 1844? The Day of Atonement lasted one day. You're telling me I'm not supposed to do any manual labor since 1844? <laughs> I'm grateful to God that that's, the answer is no. That's not what the Lord meant. But it's deep what he meant. It's deep what he meant. Now, one of the things you'll find when it comes to do no work, you, I mean, obviously, people did no work because it was a Sabbath. That's why in verse 32, Leviticus 23, it says that the day of atonement was also a Sabbath day. Therefore, it was natural for them to say don't work because on the Sabbath you don't work. Now, the reason why we don't work is because we are not to do anything that would distract us or take away the sacredness of the Sabbath. Is that right? Okay. so it is that God was saying to you and I today that we are not to do anything that removes the solemnity of the time that we're in. Do not get yourselves involved in different things that will cause the mind to forget. Remember we said we have nothing to fear for the future except as we forget. We are to guard our minds that in whatever aspects of life or dynamics of life that I participate in, that it should not remove from my mind the solemnity of the times that I'm in. I'm living in the anti-typical day of atonement. And I must never forget that. And I must keep that before my children, before my spouse, before my brethren. Now, understanding this, we are not to allow any distraction, distracting forces to come in our lives. This is one of the great focuses that God wanted us to do during this day of atonement because Jesus wants to cleanse that sanctuary. He wants to give us power to stop doing the thing that caused him to turn his face from us. But now I want you to see a nice little promise that God showed us in Hebrews 9. Will God have a people like this? Oh, yes. Hebrews 9. In Hebrews, the ninth chapter, notice what the Bible says now. Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 26 and 28. Nothing should distract us from the great task that has been set up by God. What is that task? To cleanse the sanctuary. But the only way he can cleanse the sanctuary is he must first cleanse the people. So therefore, nothing should distract us from the task. What is the task? Hebrews 9. In Hebrews 9 and verse 26, the Bible says, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to do what? Put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So you can't get victory over sin, but God can in you and through you. Amen? All right, good. Verse 28. And the promise is, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without what? Without sin unto salvation. Now, did Jesus ever have sin on him? Did Jesus commit any sins? No, he did not. So therefore, when Christ comes back without sin, is it him without sin or is it going to be us without sin? You don't sound like you're sure. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, he was tempted in all points and yet without sin. Jesus, Jesus was already without sin. So therefore, when he comes back and then there's going to be this without sin, it is not talking about himself. He's talking about you and me. Without sin unto salvation. That's the great goal. That's the great focus. And, this is the, and therefore, if he's coming back to a people without sin, then that means that victory over sin must take place before he comes. Anybody who tells you you're going to keep sinning until Jesus comes? I'm trying to learn from um, Pastor Bradshaw and say things kindly. They are sadly mistaken. The Lord is polishing me. Anyone who tells you you're going to keep sinning until Jesus comes, they can't believe the Bible. There's no way you could believe the Bible and read the Bible and believe we're going to keep sinning all the way up until Jesus comes. You can't believe that. A time is going to come where Jesus is going to say, let him who is filthy be filthy still. Revelation 15, 8 says that it was right, right around that time when Jesus says, let him who is filthy be filthy still, it says that the sanctuary will be filled with smoke. There'll be no mediation going on after Christ says that. Now, if there is no mediation going on, and yet, When Jesus says, let him who is filthy be filthy still, let him who is holy be holy still, and then God's people go through a time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30, verses 5 through 7. If God's people are now going through this great time of Jacob's trouble, brothers and sisters, that means that when they go through the time of trouble, if we're going to keep sinning until Jesus comes, that means everybody going through the time of Jacob's trouble is going to sin, and the problem is there's no mediator. And that means that the Bible is telling a lie. She shall not call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from sin. I guess when Jesus comes back, he's going to save a whole lot of people in sin. But is that what the Bible teaches? Thank God, no. Thank God, no. Say again, brother. It's a lopsided righteousness by faith. We understand where it comes from, but brother, nevertheless... We have to understand that there's a balance. You know, if I were to describe righteousness by faith in one verse, it would be Hebrews 11:7. In Hebrews 11:7, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his household, upon which he, beca- which, upon which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. It is cooperation between humanity and divinity that brings about the experience ultimately of righteousness by faith, not just through justification alone, but justification and sanctification, which leads to glorification. So when people start giving that lopsided gospel, brothers and sisters, we just got to help them get balanced. Amen. Well, the great work of Christ is to do this. But watch this. Jesus wants to come back to a world where he's going to have a people that are without sin. But the question is, what is sin? Now, that's a good old Adventist question. And give me that good old Adventist verse. What does it say? 1 John 3, 4? Of the law. All right. So sin is the transgression of the law. Now, if sin is a transgression of the law, then that means that if God is doing a work of judgment upon which he is going to definitely have to cleanse the sanctuary, then the standard of that judgment to know who makes it versus who doesn't will be based on who is keeping my... Law, James chapter 2. Let's go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. In James 2, notice what the Bible says in verse 12, popular text. Another one of those Adventist proof texts. James 2, 12. The Bible says, So speak ye, and so do as they that shall be judged. By the law of liberty. Now, previous verses show that that law of liberty is none other than the Ten Commandments. Is that right? Yes. So God is doing a work of judgment, and as he's investigating and looking at yours in my life, he is seeing who is letting Jesus in to empower them that they can choose this day whom they will serve and live a life above sin and be obedient to all of my commandments. I'm telling you, that message today was powerful. Now, understanding this, Revelation 14 and verse 12, another one of our coin texts, another Adventist proof text. Revelation 14, 12, it says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. All right. So will God have a people that's going to live victorious over sin? Yes. God is going to have a people that are not trying to. They will keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Our whole mission, our whole focus is, Lord, how can I be counted amongst the number? Amen? That's our mission. Lord, please show me how to cooperate with you so that I can be counted amongst that number. Now, I want to show you something. Let's go to the book of Exodus chapter 25. In Exodus 25, I like this. This is uh, pretty interesting. In Exodus 25 you find that God says something here. In Exodus 25, you remember in verse 8, God wanted to go ahead and establish something. And the Bible says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may do what? Dwell among them. And of course, the word among means in. God wanted to be in his people, living out his life throughout his people, and ultimately so that we can reflect his lovely image. This is God's goal. The sanctuary was designed to teach us that. And that's why I told you when you study the sanctuary, you want to be able to study it where you can see the ultimate goal. How will understanding the sanctuary help me reflect the lovely image of Jesus as I should? That's that great work that we have to do right now is to reflect that lovely image of Jesus. I always tell people, Jesus, when he's coming back, he's coming back for a bunch of mirrors. A whole bunch of people that he can see a perfect reflection of himself in them. The sanctuary was designed to teach us that. Amen? Beautiful. As long as we understand this, then when we study the sanctuary, we'll be able to see it in such a way that we can say, praise God, I can see how God is going to reflect his image in my life. I can see how he's going to do that now. And that's when we will not be counted amongst that group. That we read about in volume five of the testimonies, page 81, where she says all who assume the ornaments of the sanctuary but were not clothed in Christ's righteousness will appear in the shame of their own nakedness. We can make sure we're not in that class if we rightly understand the sanctuary and enter into its experience. Amen. All right. Good. So therefore, in Exodus 25, eight, he says, let them make me a sanctuary. Now, in the sanctuary, look at verses 21 and 22. In that sanctuary, it says in Exodus 25, 21, and 22, it says, And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee. Where is the there? Where is it? It would have to be the most holy place because where is, what is in there? The ark. So therefore, God says, and there I will meet with thee. All right. It says, and there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things, which I give thee in the commandment unto the children of Israel. So we see that God wanted to make his presence very known in this area called the most holy place. Is that right? God says, there I'm going to meet with thee. This is where people get this concept of the quote unquote Shekinah glory, where it talks about the presence of God. This is where they get this concept from. All right. Well, now let's look at this 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let's look at something. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, the Bible says. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God where? In your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So here it is that God now says that I look at your body also as a temple, as a sanctuary. And what I found to be very interesting about what God says about our temple sanctuary body is look at what it says in Hebrews 8. In Hebrews 8, I think that there's a pretty interesting point that you and I can consider. Hebrews, the 8th chapter. In Hebrews chapter 8, the Bible says something very powerful. In Hebrews 8, notice what it says in verse 10. It says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. He says, I will put my laws where? into their mind and write them where in their hearts and i will be to them a god and they shall be to me a people so it's funny because when you look at the the, when you look at the physical structure of the sanctuary you find that it was in the most holy place where the ark was where the commandments were where god's presence was that now it seems like god says okay that's that here but when i look at your body it's also where i want my presence to be and it's also where i put my law in your mind So it's almost like we're seeing a correlation between principles from the most holy place and then looking at the temple body structure upon which he puts the law of God in the mind. Now, why do you think God put the law in the mind? Why did he say he wants to write the law in the mind and in the heart? What what do you think? Just thoughts. Why why do you think, you know, God said that or, or wants to do that? Say again. So you know them and want to do them. I like that. That's nice. Yes. Okay, so the mind is a control center. Okay, good. You know, when it talks about the uh, mind, it's talking about the intelligence and understanding. I was just kind of looking up some words. That's why I really appreciate that point you brought out, as well as yours, sis. Um, It talks about the mind equaling intelligence and understanding. And when it talked about the heart, it talks about emotions and feelings. And I thought that that was pretty cool because that's kind of like that early writing 72, you know, faith is ours to exercise. So I first intellectually understand it, and then I exercise faith and do it, and then God causes me to actually have joyful feeling about the thing that I've done. So I'm both intellectually and in my feelings, I'm in harmony with God. That's ultimately what he wants for all of us. Now, the reason why I found this to be very important is because in Romans 7.25, it says we serve the law of God with our minds. And I thought to myself, I said, that's interesting. We serve that law of God with our minds. Now, the reason why this becomes important is because one of the things we have to consider is that when we listen to music, we're also going to have to look at how does it affect my mind? Both from a thinking standpoint to the actual function of my brain waves. How does it affect my mind? You following? Now, the reason why this becomes important is because I want you to think about this. In Councils in Health 616, it says the brain nerves which communicate with the entire system are the only medium through which heaven can communicate to man and affect his inmost life. Whatever disturbs the circulation of the electric currents in the nervous system lessens the strength of the vital powers and the result is a deadening of the sensibilities of the mind. Now, that's deep because that means that whatever I let inside of my head, I got to consider how it's going to affect my mind. And brothers and sisters, always remember the brain is different from the mind. In fact, if you were to consider it this way, you would look at the brain as hard drive and the mind as software. That's how you would do it. The brain houses the mind, but the brain and the mind are not the same. The same way that the hard drive has to be working right, so that way the software, because think about it. If the hard drive is messed up, will it affect your software? It'll affect the performance of that software, wouldn't it? So it is that if the brain nerves become damaged, then it's also gonna affect the software of my mind. And I serve the law of God with my mind, and the law of God is the standard in the judgment upon which Christ is either going to blot out my sins or my name. So therefore, it becomes imperative that I make sure that I pay attention to what's going on in my mind. Are you following? All right, good. Now, the reason why this becomes so important to me is because, brothers and sisters, many people do not look at how does music affect the mind. That's why I like physiology. Now, this little book right here has been very helpful. Um, You know, it took me a while to learn this man's last name. And his last name is Sitalabasidis. I finally got it right. So uh, perhaps he'll listen to audio verse. He'll say, Dwayne, thanks for getting it right. (laughs) But uh, it's a nice little book. But I call this an atom bomb. This is Drums, Rock, and Worship. And I love this because this gets into the drum set. And because I'm not privileged to go into in-depth things on relation to this, I'm going to encourage you to get this book. I'm serious. I really am. I want to encourage you to go ahead and get it and start doing some research. You know why? Because I especially like pages 16 to 25. And I'm going to tell you what, about, what, what it is about pages 16 to 25 in just a moment. But what's happening today is we have many individuals who are using music as a means of evangelism to try to win people to the truth. But a lot of times they're incorporating worldly music and worldly systems and worldly ideas to try to go ahead and win souls. But do you know where we were warned about this? We were told that a new order of things has come into the ministry. This is from Second Selected Messages, page 18. It says a new order of things has come into the ministry. There is a desire to pattern after other churches and simplicity and humility are almost unknown. It says the young ministers seek to be original and to introduce new ideas and new plans for labor. It says some open revival meetings and by this means cause large numbers into the church. And, you know, brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you the truth. There was a time that I used to be impressed with large numbers. Not anymore. Not anymore. There was a large number of people who came with Israel called the mixed multitude, and inspiration says that they were the ones who constantly led Israel into sin. It's not enough to just bring in a whole bunch of people. And you know, today, unfortunately, there are many churches, many conferences that will literally judge a man by how many people he brings into a church. You know what, brothers and sisters? I'm so grateful that I have inspiration to tell me the success of a true minister. You want to know what the success of a true minister is? Oh, i love to read it. Acts of the Apostles, page 228. Acts of the Apostles. I want you to listen to this in page 328, 328. Oh, brothers and sisters, listen, if you if any of you are, are the, theology majors, I want you to listen to this. This is how you know when you are a successful minister of the gospel. Jesus says the conversion of sinners. And. Their sanctification through the truth is the strongest proof a minister can have that God has called him into the ministry. Strongest proof. Strongest proof. The conversion of sinners and their sanctification through the truth is the strongest proof a minister can have that God has called him into ministry the ministry brothers and sisters it's not enough to just bring numbers in you want to know why look at what it says it says some open revival meetings and by this means call large numbers into the church but when the excitement is over where are the converted ones when all the excitement is over where are the converted ones brothers and sisters it says repentance and confession of sin are not seen It says the sinner is entreated to believe in Christ and accept him without regard to his past life of sin and rebellion. It says the heart is not broken. There is no contrition of soul. The supposed converted ones have not fallen upon the rock. Christ Jesus. It's not about numbers. It's not limited to numbers. Oh, I believe me when I say and I know the day of numbers is coming. When that latter rain power begins to fall upon God's people, we are going to see Pentecost part two, brothers and sisters. But I'm telling you, it's not enough to call large numbers in. And individuals are taking all these forms of music and all these things, and they're bringing people in. And one of the chief forms of music that they're using today is this thing right here called jazz. Now, when you look at jazz music, it says, as with many, this is actually from uh, Wikipedia, it says, as with many words that began in slang, there is no definite etymology for jazz. However, the similarity in meaning of the earliest jazz citations to, to, uh, to jazz to jazzism, a now obsolete slang term meaning spirit, energy, vigor, and dated to 1860 in the Historical Dictionary of American Slang suggests that jasm should be considered the leading candidate for the source of jazz. Now, what's the interesting thing about this word Jasmine? It says a link between the two words is particularly supported by the Daily California's February 18, 1916 article, which used the spelling of jasm, although the context and other articles in the Daily California, Californian from this period show that jazz was intended. Now, watch this. I got to move quick. My time is gone. Jasm is thought to derive from or be a variant of slang jism or jism with a G which the historical dictionary of American slang dates to 1842 and defines as spirit, energy, and spunk. But look, jism also means semen or sperm. It says the meaning that predominates today causing jism to be considered a taboo word. You see, for many years, people used to look up the word jazz, and they would always see that the origin of jazz and the word sex were always going hand in hand. This is just explaining how it got to that point. Derivatives from the word coming here, coming there, and so on, and bringing this ultimate point here. And then ultimately, it went from a term to a style of music. And that's why some of the people can commit some of the greatest sins today in the name of fornication and sexual sin, and they can do it to jazz. Now, this is some of the origin of where this term came from. But let's notice, rock and roll. Rock and roll, often written as rock and roll or rock and roll, is a genre of popular music that originated and developed and evolved in the United States during the late 1940s and early 1950s, primarily from a combination of the blues, country music, jazz, and... gospel music. Though elements of rock and roll can be heard in country records of the 1930s and in blues records from the 1920s, rock and roll did not acquire its name until the 1950s. An early form of rock and roll was rockabilly, which combined country and jazz with influences from traditional Appalachian folk music and gospel. Interesting. I wonder. Gospel music. Thomas A. Dorsey composer of such standards as there will be peace in the valley is considered by many gospel devotees to be the father of gospel music the son of a minister dorsey was a consummate musician and as a young man accompanied some of the most famous blues singers of all time specifically bessie smith and ma rainey he also arranged and composed blues tunes His penchant for bouncy tunes and bawdy lyrics did not keep him from attending the annual meetings of the National Baptist Convention. It was at one of these meetings in Philadelphia that Dorsey first heard the compositions of Charles A. Tindley. And this was a gentleman who wrote, We'll Understand It Better and By and By. These were these spiritual songs. But watch this. In his essay, Rock Church Rock, Arna Bontep says that it was then that Dorsey began to write religious music, abandoning his brash lyrics, but not the jazz rhythms and blues flavor and rhythmic style so akin to Tindley's own. Naturally, the old guard conservatives considered this blending of the sacred, spiritual hymns, and the secular, blues and jazz. You know, Jesus says even sometimes the people in the world are wiser than the children of light. This is what the worldlings are describing it as. It, it says, as the devil's music and shunned it. By its actions, the church declared Dorsey's brand of music gospel music. Unworthy of a hearing within the sanctuaries of the day, a story quite similarly echoed by churches responding to their rock and roll Jesus movement that swept the country in the early 70s. Gospel music, brothers and sisters, is a combination of jazz and rhythm and blues and even rock and roll. Now, do you know what's so deep about that? The Seventh-day Adventist Church presented a whole bunch of principles on music, and they concluded by saying the above principles will serve as effective guidelines in the choice and use of music for the varied needs of the church. Certain musical forms such as jazz, rock, and their related hybrid forms are considered by the church as incompatible with these principles. Do you know, <laughs> it's funny, there's so much that I want to share with you. I mean, because this, this thing really gets me. There was a time that if we taught present truth, in certain churches and pulpits and things of that nature, people would say, hey, wait a minute, we, we haven't learned these messages from some of our mainstream leaders, so they would go ahead and start to look at people funny and say, oh, you're, you're out of harmony with what the church is doing right now and all these other things. But ever since God sent that man by the name of Ted Wilson, Amen. I repeat, God said that man. No human beings voted him, voted him in. Angels voted him in. Angels voted him in. Angels just whispered into humans' ears and said, vote Ted Wilson. And they just said, yeah, yeah. Brothers and sisters, when that man of God took that position and therefore now he started to once again make the pulpits of Seventh-day Adventism a place where present truth is quite welcome like never before. I praise God for that. It was there before, but there were some fights. But now the doors have opened like never before. And do you know, brothers and sisters, that while we're seeing all these things take place, it's funny. There was a time that people would accuse other individuals of being insubordinate of what the church stands for. But do you know how many Seventh-day Adventist churches and how many Seventh-day Adventist schools and how many Seventh-day Adventist choirs you can listen to today and they're doing all sorts of gospel music? They're doing all sorts of program songs, and different things where they take the combination of jazz music and rock and roll or one of their genres and they're trying to bring in all of this Christ-likeness, brothers and sisters, and it seems like all of a sudden many people are saying nothing. That's insubordination. We just read, clear as day, that it is the position of the church and I'm serious because I'm part of a conference, brothers and sisters, and I know not everybody in my conference is wicked. I believe that there are 7,000 who still have not bowed their knees to bail. Amen. I know that for a fact. There are people in this movement and who are employed by our churches and our conferences who are standing for the right, though the heavens may fall. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I wish so much that I could talk to you more about these things. But I close with this. Let me, let me give this last piece and then I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Questions to ask yourself going forward as you listen to music going forward as you choose songs here's some questions to ask yourself number one does this music help me appreciate god and his law based on the things that we've studied you want to ask yourself does this music help me appreciate god and his law number two does this music cause my body to maintain the laws that govern it in other words Is the music I'm listening to, does it cause my heartbeat to go at a rapid race? Does it cause my mind to be in a state of confusion? Does it raise my blood pressure to an unnatural level? We have laws of health as well, don't we? (laughs) Amen. Number three, does this music inspire me to be more obedient to God's word and to live by every word of it? You want to ask yourself that. I'm sorry, I pray that you write these down. You want to ask yourself these questions the next time you hit play on that MP3 player, CD player, or whatever else it may be. Does this music help me to be determined to be prepared for the second coming of Jesus Christ? And I would add into that the final crisis, because that final crisis comes before Jesus comes. Five. Does this music cause my mind? to dwell on heavenly holy things? Or does it make me say, man, I remember that from back in the days? Yep. Does this music increase my desire for Bible study and deep heart searching prayer? These are qualifying questions you can ask. Does this music help me to be more helpful in evangelism? Remember, we said that the music that we listen to should cause us to work the works of Christ. Christ was an evangelist. These are the things that you want to consider as you go forward in listening to your music. May God help us that as we make a decision to say, Lord, I want to honor you and glorify you in all that I say and do. By your grace and by your power, as I continue to assess music and all these different things, lyrics and otherwise, that I will make sure that by your grace and your power, that my life will be in cooperation with thee. You know, brothers and sisters, once you start to listen to good music, don't think that you're more righteous than others. Be grateful. Be grateful that God has brought you out of different points of darkness into his marvelous light. And in humility, be an instrument of blessing to those who are still in darkness. And do everything you can to pray with them, help them, and lift them up out of the pit of darkness, even of the life of sin. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for the time that we spent. Lord, there's so much more, Father. I pray that your spirit will bridge the gaps and bring all the different pieces to the puzzle that we were not successful in covering throughout these three seminars. But I pray, dear God, that the foundation that has been laid, may we build upon it. And I pray that ultimately, may we find ourselves a people prepared to meet our God. Help us ever to remember that even before the image of the beast was set up in Daniel 3, that the first thing they did was play music to drunken the mind. Lord, I pray help us to realize that while the image of the beast is getting ready to be set up in these last days, Lord, help us to understand that the music that has infiltrated this church is to drunken and confuse the mind that we will know not our position in our work. Lord, help us to realize that time is almost finished. And in all that we say, do sing and listen to, may it truly be to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.